0: What is up, everyone? First of all, thank you for tuning in to the first ever episode of The Justin Ledger Show. I'm really excited to get started on this. I think it's something many of you will enjoy listening to, or at least I hope so. We've got some great guests lined up to start things off, starting with the one and only Steve Buckley of The Athletic, formerly The Boston Herald. I wanted to have Buck on because, A, he's simply one of the best sports writers and columnists in Boston. He's someone any aspiring sports media personality can learn a lot from and b because he's always been one of the most personable people in this sports media industry and those are few and far between we'll get more into our first interaction in this episode and it was actually pretty funny but to sum things up buck is just a good guy he's great at what he does it's fun to talk baseball with him and it's an honor to have him on as the first guest so without further ado Here's the first episode of the Justin Ledger Show featuring Steve Buckley.
1: Yeah, I want to take off the Tufts University hoodie. (laughs) I didn't go to Tufts. Oh, you can pretend you did. No, I went to UMass. I'm cool with
0: that. Where'd you go to school? You went to to Endicott. I knew it was one of those preppy schools. I I regret it, but I went there. It's too expensive. I'm still paying it off.
1: Yeah, I I actually um, I I hear a lot of that 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 people in your age group that the staggering college loan debt. Yeah, uh, it's not great. About, no, I talk about that a lot because, um, you know, I've got nephews and nieces and so forth.
0: So I have, I, I think I started out with it had to have been a hundred and probably twenty thousand dollars of student debt. Like that's how ridiculous it is for a communications degree. That's absurd. But you don't. You don't get told that when you're 18 years old, Exactly. Like you, you don't get told that just with the situation, my parents didn't know, they didn't go to college. So they're just like, go to college. You're going to get a great education. You're going to make the money back. Like it's all going to be fine. And then next so thing you know,
1: what, how old were you when you got your first credit card?
0: My first credit card. I don't think I got my first credit card until I was like 20, 21. Okay. Maybe even after that. I didn't
1: get my first credit cards. I was 25.
0: Right, And one of the things I've I noticed
1: over the years, I would go to college campuses a lot, either to speak or to cover an event. And yeah. I'd, UMass, I'd walk through the Campus Center at UMass, and I went to UMass. And they have all these tables all set up in the Campus Center. And when I was there, it was like, you know, like demonstrations, stop the war, or donate to this cause, or yep. some frat is selling t-shirts to raise money for, you know, whatever. but. I'd start to go there years, you know, like twenty years after I graduated, and there were these tables everywhere. They're basically giving out credit cards. And yeah, It's find, all. It,
0: the whole system sign, is kind of a scam, to be honest with you. Like, yeah, you it, it's
1: sign up, you sign up for a credit card. Oh, like no, you know, blah blah blah, free credit card, five hundred dollar limit. Okay, what's so five hundred dollar limit? Then you get these kids that would get seven, eight, nine, ten credit cards, and as soon as you make your first payment, they increase your your limit. Yep. You make another payment and they increase it more. Now, all of a sudden you get a $10,000 limit. I uh, I, uh, I was talking to one kid that he had like $25,000 in credit card debt. Yeah. When he graduated from college. I had none of that because I had no credit card. Therefore, I couldn't right. run
0: Oh, they're handing them out like hotcakes now. Like yeah. I get them in the mail, like the pre-approved and all that stuff. And then yeah. I think it was like 2021. You have people telling you, you got to build your credit. So you're panicking. Then you got yeah. the student loan debt on top of it. I've never had credit card debt. I've all only had student loan debt, but that's enough to hold me back in general. Luckily I did get myself a place, but it's not like a $450,000 place. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's a starter home, but it's, I don't know how people do it these days. I really don't. Yeah. Unless they got like big time scholarships right out of school. This is all going in the show, by the way, because it's a good conversation <laughs> to have for people who are who are getting into, you know, they, they got to know what they're getting themselves into. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we could actually go off of that topic. First off, I want to know how you've been since this whole pandemic started. I know we had a couple of conversations since then, but I mean, what have you been up to? What's What's been going on in the world, Steve Buckley? Well,
1: I mean, I've been... Working out of my house, like a lot of people do, yep. and uh, I haven't been traveling, I haven't been going to restaurants. Uh, I'm, at, I'm in that age group where you, you gotta be a little careful about this. So I've been guarding myself. So I've, I've got two major things going for me that make it impossible for me to complain. One is I haven't lost my job.
0: Yeah, that's a huge job. thing.
1: And it puts me, you know, ahead of a lot of people. And B, or two, I haven't I haven't gotten sick. So the way I look at it is if you still have your job and you have your health, then you have zero to complain about. So I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, you know, boo-hoo, I can't go bowling or I can't go to a restaurant right. or I can't hop on a plane and go to South Beach or something. So um, I'll get past this just fine.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm in the same boat where it's, uh, you we've seen layoffs at the company I'm at right now. I'm sure there's been layoffs, uh, where you are, where uh, maybe not, I don't know, but there's been layoffs all over this sports media industry. Uh, I'm happy that I'm not one of them, but who knows what could happen if this thing drags on, I'm happy to still have my job uh, as well. Um, and I think the way you're approaching it is the right way to approach it. If you still have a job, you're already ahead of so many people through this. If you have your health, you're already ahead of so many people through this. Um, it's, it's tough right now. And it's tough to complain too, because I, I find like, for example, my girlfriend, she works in a salon, right? And so she'll, she'll come back from work and she'll see me on my laptop, kicking back, watching the paths and I'm working, but she's like, really, this is what you do. You're you don't know how good you have it. So I think we do in this industry, as long as we still have our jobs, got to kind of remember that.
1: No, I agree. And, uh, so I'm just going to ride it out, man.
0: Yeah, that's what you got to do. Uh, last time we talked last time we actually did an interview. I don't know if I I don't know if I told you this the last time we talked on the phone, but when we did that interview, it it got deleted. I don't know what happened. I think we did it over the phone. Uh, and I used some third party app to record it. I yeah. should have known probably that that was not going to work. Um, so I'm happy to have you on now. I think when we talked, then we talked about kind of just a broad podcast, by the way. This is the podcast. This is it. This is the show. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. We, we talked about the sports media field and how it's kind of, uh, just how much it's changed over time since you started. I'm not calling you old. I'm not saying that, but it's changed so much since, since you started in this field, what kinds of things do you see? Like if you're starting in this field now, what do you need to be doing? What is the key? I
1: would say to diversify. Um, yeah, that's to, what I always hear. To be willing to do lots of different things, and uh, the the first thing I tell people is, you know, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a journalist, or do you want to work in sports? People, I meet a lot of people who say, oh, I want to work in sports, and I say, okay, well, go work in sports. Go work for the Bruins, the Red Sox, or go for minor league baseball team. If you want want to work in journalism, if you want to work in media, right go work in media. Now, I didn't get into the business. You know, I took kind of a weird route. I didn't get into the business to, to be in sports. I, I, my first job was as a sports writer with the uh, Westfield Evening News in 1978. I was 22 and fresh out of UMass, And I did that for a year and I decided I didn't wanna do sports. So I took a job as a news reporter at the, uh, another small paper, the Journal Tribune up in Bitterford, Maine. And I was going to be in news. That was where I was headed, and I did it for six months. Well, then the sports editor quits, and since I had been working in sports in Westfield, Mass, the uh, the managing editor says, "Well, do you want to be sports editor?" I said, "No, I want to work in news." And he says, "Well, too bad. The job pays like two hundred and thirty dollars a week, and I was making like one seventy a week, and mm-hmm. you know, it's a long time ago, and that represented a huge raise." So I became right. a sports editor of the Journal Tribune, which led me to go into Portland, the Portland Press Herald, which is the biggest paper in the state, and I covered minor league baseball. And then it was off to Seattle, New York, and you know here we are. And uh, and I don't regret it. I mean I love what I've done, and I've, it's allowed me to branch out into you know TV and radio and some books and some other things. But uh, if all you have is sports knowledge. That, that isn't going to, to, to cut it, especially in today's age. You need to be able to do different things. I always tell younger people, you know, send out a movie review, send out a, a story on some political event, show prospective editors that you're versatile and you can do different things.
0: Yeah, that's key. And the other thing I've heard a lot is get involved. Like for example, what I'm doing now with a podcast, like if you're just getting into the field now I, with writing and that's it, I don't think that's going to work in this landscape of media. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, there's some really, really good writers out there. You are being, you are one of them. You've proved that that's kind of wrong. The athletics doing great things for journalism. Um, But I feel like when you're just breaking in, like right this second, you're coming out of school and all, if all you have is writing and you can't show anything else, I don't know if that cuts it. Do you agree with that? Or do you, do you think uh, like what kind of, like, do you think video is important? Like, you need video you need podcasting oh, yeah. no, or is that I'm just totally like good. icing yeah. on the cake
1: The uh you know this like uh megan odellini at the herald yep uh, she's got like a uh, a whole tv station in her backpack and right. she can go set up somewhere on her own and set up her camera and you know she was right there in the middle of presidential race uh she was at this big trump thing somewhere in boston and people are jabbing at her and stuff oh fake news and (laughs) and uh and and she's in her early 20s very talented very versatile and and she's setting up cameras and she's doing all this stuff and like you know I, i i got i got the little phone here and i could take pictures and stuff but uh my 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 technical skills i'm sure i could acquire them if i if need be but my my technical skills are sort of at a low point uh, at minimum compared to what people in your age group are doing. And thank God that you were able to do that. Um, because right. you know, like I said, they will say, oh, can you, can, you, can you shoot? Like when I was at the Westfield Evening News, I had to take my own pictures because we only had one full-time photographer and, and I'd cover like the Westfield High, West Springfield game, in soccer. And I was supposed to take some pictures they can run on the paper. I had terrible uh, photo taking skills I can do it now with a cell phone uh, because it's, it's just the, the technology is there. But I had this like old phone, this old camera rather, and all my, I take like 50 pictures and I take them back to the guy in the, you know, the little photo room in the back. And it was a it was a quest to find one usable photo because everything I had was blurry and washed out, you know, and so forth. And so I finally developed this trick where I would like wait until there's like a timeout and then like Dave Engelbrecht, the big football star at Westfield high would go over to the bench and get a drink of water. Yeah. And, you know, and like he's just standing there with the water and I take a picture and we run in <laughs> the paper on Monday, you know, running back Dave Engelbrecht takes a breather during Westfield's 28, six victory over Westside on Saturday because it was the one usable photo. And, right. you know, it's, it's like, you need to have a lot of versatility, which clearly I didn't have back then. Fortunately, the next paper I went to, and then from there on, my photography skills weren't needed. I can take pictures now for the website right. because the, the photos you take on a cell phone uh, will come out great as long as it's a decent photo uh, at our website. So I'll, I'll snap a picture of some guy I'm interviewing and so forth. But I couldn't have done that back then.
0: Uh, going back to what you said about choosing between being a journalist or if you just want to work in sports, I think that was a very important point because I think a lot of college students are a little confused about that. So my example would be when I broke into college, I was, I, I obviously you take intro to journalism and you take those types of classes. And I was like, oh, I, I thought I were, I, I, I'm working in sports media now, but I don't think I had the same thing in my head going into school of what sports media was. It's not just knowing about sports. I've always been knowledgeable about sports, but then, but going out to talk to people, putting yourself out there, being, having the mic and being able to ask questions, follow-up questions, go to an event, cover the event, do all that stuff. I don't think students, a lot of students, I'm not saying all, but a lot of students don't understand just how much work goes into it. Um, So what do you think, what would your advice to be advice be to those students who are kind of, I guess, stuck in that place of trying to choose, do I want to be a journalist or do I want to go into uh, something at like what, what should stand out to them as a warning sign? Like this might not be for you.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so by way of example, when I was working in Portland, Maine, I was covering the AAA baseball team, the main guides, and I was traveling with them and mm-hmm. We were in um, Toledo one day and uh, we had an off day and Toledo is only about 50 miles. It's in Northwest Ohio. It's only about 50 miles from Detroit. So me and Gary Thorne, who later became a very famous announcer with the Mets and the White Sox and Orioles and hockey, but he was the play-by-play of the main guy was 1984. We rented a car and drove to Tiger Stadium because the Indians, who are the major league affiliate of our main guides in Detroit playing the tigers so we're tiger stadium and i got talking with terry pluto who longtime sports writer with the cleveland Plain dealer and he's asked me well, you know what do you want to do where do you want to go and i said well i want to i want to cover big league baseball i want to be a traveling beat writer which i ended up being but he was rolling his eyes and oh it's lots of travel it's thought. And then I'll never forget this. He puts his hands up, he goes, you know what? You want to do it, do it. Because if you don't do it, you're always going to wonder what it's like, but if you really want to do it, you go do it and there'll be a job for you. And that was Terry Pluto, it was 1984. And, you know, I kept plugging away and I ended up out in Seattle, New York, and then Boston as a a big league traveling baseball writer. And everything, he, all the pitfalls, he told me about it came to pass that the travel can really wear you down the late nights the the hotel food the press box food the stress of writing a deadline um now i wouldn't have changed it for anything i mean it was it's a wonderful memory to have had to have done that for those years but it it is physically exhausting sometimes more so probably now i don't do that thing now but these poor people now have to tweet and there's everything everything's so much yeah it's a 24 7 industry which is why beat writers generally I mean, when i was in the business when i was just starting out the beat writers at most papers they'd been there 20 25 years it was just just what you did right. and you you look at today's industry it's it's a really a lot more women a lot more young people and they transition they move in and out of different beats and different jobs because it is it is exhausting so with that long-winded preamble out of the way i i would tell younger people what Terry Pluto told me in 1984 if you really, really, really want to do it, then you really, really should. And I think what's going to happen is people say, Oh, well, there aren't going to be any jobs. There are so few newspapers. Well, uh, to a degree, that's true. But mm-hmm. what will happen is I think a lot of people back in my day just did it because, OK, I'll just do this. And then eventually, trickle down, people retire and leave and so forth, and you end up with a job. I think what will happen. Now moving forward is that the younger people who again Terry Fluto, really really want to do it Will be generally the people with with the most zeal and interest in doing it And there will be jobs for them Maybe not as many but it will be sort of a leveling off thing where the people who don't want to spend the time required To to get to a certain level may migrate to other pursuits and other industries and other jobs whereas those who really want to do it We'll kind of stay with it and the jobs will be there, particularly where there's so much turnover now in the, for the younger people
0: i've definitely got the feeling talking to people i've had people reached out reach out to me about hey what does it take to get into this field i see you work working nbc sports boss and how do you get that job how do you do this how do you do that and what i always say is like don't expect to get full-time gig right out of college because it's probably not going to happen there's not enough yeah. jobs out there to begin with a and b you have to be good I mean, no one's just going to hire you because you have the degree. You have to have writing samples. Even for my site that I do on the side, I require writing samples. I require some sort of work that shows you can do it. Um, right. So that that's what I always say to people. Now, do you think for those people who are journalism students who have decided, hey, this is my path, I want to be in sports journalism, do you think beat writing is a necessity? Or do you think there's other ways they can do it that can kind of help them evolve in this field? Or would you say you got to get on a beat uh, in some form or fashion, whether it's part-time or full-time?
1: Yeah, um, depends on what your end game is. Like if if you want to be a columnist, which I did for quite a few years and still do, if you want to be a feature writer, which is a lot of what I do now at The Athletic, I write longer pieces, I don't think there are a lot of entry-level jobs for younger people to get those jobs unless they have some hardcore news and beat writing skills. And I I, I think that's still a good, like the the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, the the Hartford Providence Journal, all the big papers and websites um, too are are not going to hire, unless you're just this like lottery pick, I mean, who knows? Um, I remember back in the early eighties, the Boston Globe, hired Jackie McMullen. I think she, I forget what paper she worked at, but she was at the Globe at a very young age. And at a very young age was writing features because she had a singular talent. Uh, Ian Thompson was another one at the Boston Globe back then that was writing some pretty in-depth features at a young age. But by and large, I think many people come into the industry, you, you basically take what you can get. I mean, there's Steve Hewitt at the Boston Herald was hired by the Herald out of UMass to basically answer phones. He was what they call an EA editorial assistant and he's answering phones. He's typing in agate, he's doing whatever grunt work is available working those odd part-time ships at the Herald. And then all of a sudden, oh, you want to go cover a high school game and we're a little short the Patriots today, do you want to go do a Patriots sidebar on uh, Wednesday, you know, media day interview day. And all of a sudden, he's assembling a small group of clips and oh do you want to do a red sox sidebar and well now he's the red sox beat writer right and just because he kept his head down and he kept plowing away and you never ever ever say no if they say do you want to go do this convention on chinese pottery at the convention sure i'll go do it and right do it. and you don't want them to get it in their heads well we're not going to ask him because he always said, never say no. Going way, way back, uh, there's a really great autobiography, Nice Guys Finish last. written. It's Leo DeRocher, the Hall of Fame manager. It's his autobiography, which was ghostwritten by Ed Lynn, who was from Boston, who's passed away. I got to know him over the years. But I read that book in high school and I remember something Leo DeRocher said in the book. He said that when he was a minor league baseball player, he, he was a shortstop. He was a shortstop second baseman. And his manager says, hey, can you play center field? He says, oh, yeah, I played 50 games in center field three years ago in high school. Oh, great. Never say no, yeah. because if, if you're on the bench and this minor league manager says, can you play center field? Leo DeRoche said, you're damn right I can play center field. He to be saying no, manager's going to turn around and put someone else out there. So if they need you to do something, do it.
0: Absolutely. I. That's so important because I, two years ago when I was in Fort Myers, that was my first time going to Fort Myers. In fact, in fact, that was my first time traveling for anything, anything in this field. That was my first time. Fort Myers, go down to Florida, cover the team. You're on your own. I, I didn't have much help there. Um, but you know what? I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for anything because and I was scared shitless. Yeah, you can swear on this podcast, by the way. I, <laughs> I was scared shitless going down to Fort Myers. Um, so I was asked to go on kind of an emergency basis. Uh, I didn't expect that. He was like, can you go in a week? And I panicked a little bit. I, I was like, uh, I got to check my schedule. I got to make sure I can do this, that. And kind of it was my way of being like, oh, shit, this is happening. Do I want to do this? Or am I going to be the guy who says no and who knows if I ever get that opportunity again? So sure enough, I went down there and it was probably the most rewarding experience that I've had in this field to this point. I'm, I'm only 27. So I'm hoping to have more of those rewarding experiences once this COVID crap's gone. But, uh, that was far and away the best thing that's happened to me so far. So that advice is perfect. Never say no. Um, we can talk about you now because we talked a lot about the young people trying to get into college. I want to talk more about you and your kind of experience. Uh, take me through your writing process. Like if you sit down to write an article or a column, whatever, and you're getting in the zone, what, what is your kind of routine for writing and getting into that position where you're ready to write a long column or whatever it is that you're doing that day?
1: Well, it depends on what I'm writing. If I'm covering a live event, God knows I haven't done one of those in a while, uh, to say it's a Patriots game that begins at one o'clock and the game ends at 4.15, you get downstairs, you interview the number of people you need to interview, the quarterback, the coach, Belichick and so forth. And then you come upstairs, you're only gonna write about a thousand words, you're banging out, you're not gonna do long, ponderous walks along the beach, running your fingers through your hair, looking for inspiration, right. you, you gotta get it done. Particularly when I was in newspapers, because you had press runs in newspaper in the deadlines. And uh, I mean, God, I would, there's a term I like to use, it's called writing with your fists, where you run downstairs and you gotta get it done in 40 minutes and you're just like pounding away at the keyboard because you gotta get it done. Yeah. Um, so there's that and now with the athletic, it is, I have kind of a hybrid job. I, I do write columns, but I, I write longer pieces too. I mean, I wrote 11,000 words on the fifth anniversary of the ice bucket challenge uh, a couple of years ago. And I interviewed like 40 people. So that, that's not the norm, but I do quite a few pieces that are four five and 6,000 words. And um, you interview a lot of people, you look up a lot of stuff you transcribe a lot of your interviews uh it's it's That's always fun it's yeah it's the worst part of the job um i'm actually working on a long piece now and my desk is just piled high w- with stuff and for a piece like that that i really want to put the time in to really make it work and this one's going to be between about 500 5, words um I can't, you know. Again, I don't have deadlines. I have to get it in a couple of days, but it's not like I'm writing furiously to get it in by eleven o'clock. Right. So, in in a, in a case like that, uh, I have a. This is my office in my house, so it's big, and I have room. I have file cabinets, and it's a good writing area. And um, but I can't I can't write for more than an hour and a half on, on something like this because I get a little punchy. So I I may stop. I may go downstairs and make a sandwich or a cup of coffee. I have free chocolate labs, I might take them for a walk. And uh, I also do housework, I'll, I'll just stop and run the dishwasher, I'll, I'll vacuum, down and I'll do something just to, and then while I'm doing it, I'm thinking about the way I, I need this transition to work and stuff like that. Um, I'm I'm probably attaching a lot more loftiness to
0: it than it requires, but no, I um, agree. Even even for my thing, my job, where I'm more so writing quick articles and everything, that can get tiring because you gotta sort of take a deep breath and be like, all right, on to the next one, like reset sort of before you get into it. And so when you go take that walk or you go to do the whatever you're doing. Um, something might pop in your head. It's like any anytime you go in the shower, you start thinking of things all the things you should've said and, and you, that you didn't think of at the time. you know what I mean like that type of situation so well uh, you know
1: it, now when it comes to writing a deadline, you know, and I've been in crowded press boxes so the world series and you know and all that and um there are some writers I'll look around, I'll see this man or woman over there, and they're just like you know mm-hmm. like they're holding socks like boom they press send They like, i'm i'm like a third of the way through and they're packing up and they're out the door and and then you've got what we call bleeders people that really just uh, and um, uh, jerry callahan who was a terrific columnist with the herald and later on a feature writer at sports illustrated i mean he would just like it was just torture you because i remember i actually met him during the 86 world series i was working in portland maine he was with the Lowell son, but I, I remember just he would write. He was just like, oh, just just like, and and you look over and says, oh my God, this poor guy, and then you pick up Sports Illustrated or the Herald, or whatever, and it's just like terrific piece that right. just you know really great writing, and uh, and he put a lot of work into it. And then as for the people who just bang it out and walk out the door, some of them their stuff sucks, and then some of them like, oh my God, this is so good uh i'd love to be one of those people that'd be great (laughs) i'm not (laughs) Don't we all i'm not and uh but it is uh it 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 all depends on how people's brains work it's just different
0: different strokes for different folks so what columns over the years that you've written are you the most proud of if you had to pick a few oh god um I don't want to put you on the spot or anything. Uh, but. I mean, there,
1: there's some I, – I like the weird ones better. I mean, oh, this was a hard-hitting column. Uh, and, and then I don't count like – so Boston teams have won six – 12 championships total this century. Yeah, Six by the Patriots, four by the Red Sox, yep. one by the Celtics, one by the Bruins. And I could say, oh, I covered you know Vinatieri's field goal in New Orleans. Uh, I covered the 2018 World Series when Chris Sale strike strikes out Manny Machado. I, the Malcolm Butler interception, I was there for that. The twenty-eight to three, I was there for that. But those are not the ones I'm most proud of because anybody could have done that. I just happened to have a seat. Right. And to be frank, I don't know if the stuff I wrote was. Like epic compared to what the games were. I mean, some of them were good, some of them not so good, but others wrote better stuff.
0: And you're uh, also getting that content from. You're getting that content everywhere. And yeah, people are just choosing where to read it. They're not really. Yeah. Not, maybe they are looking at your byline because you're a popular figure in this in this industry. I mean, but for the most part, they're just looking for a place to read it.
1: Yeah. So so I'm not pro- I'm I'm happy that I was at all those events. Not many of us could say. We were at all twelve. It's like six of us, I think, or seven, in the Boston Meteor because we keep counting of that. Just it just happened by accident. It was me, it was Dan Shaughnessy, and, and um, uh, a few others. joy Messina up Channel Seven was at all twelve championship. Mike Lynch at Channel Five, and um, uh, but I'm not proud of those. I'm I'm happy I was at them, but there have been other. I mean, just to, just to like a month or two ago, I'll give you just kind of a fun one you may have seen the little viral video that was making the rounds of the celtics have the celtics are the balls guy oh yeah love that guy yeah and and it was everywhere my editor sean lee calls me up it was his idea and he says is there any chance we can find this guy <clears throat> well we worked together we were going through different way. well it was also in barstool had really sent it to the moon and back oh, yeah. but it also put it on youtube when there were comments there and we one person, oh, that was Donnie Beardsley. And we were able to, Donnie died four or five years ago, quite suddenly of a heart attack. He was married, he had three or four kids. And I was able to track down his brother and his wife. And they told me like wonderful anecdotes about what a sweet, affable, fun loving guy he was. And all people had seen was a seven second video. And I was able to determine through Donnie's brother that the video that Barstool got was from a 30 for 30 documentary on the Celtics Lakers series. And that was just, and I got the director of it on the phone who told me, yes, they used that. They got that from NBA entertainment. And they had a crew filming different and they talked to Donnie at a bar, uh, maybe the fours, they weren't really sure. And he just, who's going to win it. There's no other reason. You know, the Celtics are the balls. So awesome. And, uh, and, and it caught fire, and but I was able to tell his who he was, what he represented, what he was all about, what his family life was. And his wife met him at a party in Medford, Mass, in the 80s, and she was being set up to meet this other guy, but she met Donnie, and, and, and I love this story that, that Donnie took a pizza box an empty pizza box. And he wrote his name and number. And he says, call me sometime. <laughs> and she liked him. She called him and they ended up having this one, you know, get married and had a bunch of kids. That's and, amazing. And, um, and there's this, this, uh, it, it really puts some emphasis on, and it fleshes out who he was, uh, that game where they filmed that little video was before game five of the 84. One of the NBA finals years against the uh, Lakers. Well, Donnie's brother told me, Donnie was at that game. He attended the game. Donnie didn't have a ticket. Donnie was with a buddy and he knew somebody who knew somebody and they, he walked in with a bunch of concessions workers at like an hour and a half, two hours before the game, got inside, they went into a men's room and stood on the stall, the toilet with the door closed. So if anybody came in and they just sat there or stood there until the gates opened and all the fans started coming in and then they just opened the door, washed their hands like they were in there, you know, and then walked out and watched the game, and uh, and so I'm proud of that piece because it was it was very well read. It was fun. Uh, it's it, unique. It was unique. It was different, and uh, you know, I, I credit my editor with the idea, um, but somebody had to write it. And fortunately it was me, and I I love that piece, and it was. It, it didn't take me a year to write. I wrote it in a couple of hours after I got in touch with his brother and Donnie's uh, widow, his wife. And those are the pieces that I like because they're just unique. They're different. They're fun. Um, and, and people react to them
0: when you reach out like that. Uh, cause I think a lot of people get nervous about making that first step, you know, reaching out, following up, Uh, which is all journalism one-on-one. But I think that's a step a lot of people are afraid of making when you're, especially when you're first breaking in, do do you ever get, is that ever a challenge or is that easier than a lot of people believe it to be? Like if you're reaching out, can it be sort of a pain and then you got to figure out a new story and then you're panicking about that. And like, are are the people you reach out to maybe a little giving you a little bit of pushback? Like, is that as scary as many people make it out to be?
1: I wouldn't call it scary. Um, I I think that comes with experience. Right. If if you've done it enough times, um, it's, it's like when you playing, playing pickup baseball, when you're a kid uh, or your dad throws a baseball at you and it seems like it's coming at you hundred miles an hour. And you're like, ah, which was always the case with me. I was, um, but, App, you've done it enough times. There's a reason why Wade Boggs would take like 200 ground balls every day at four o'clock before a game because it was just a matter of rhythm and keeping keeping that going. And I think in to apply that to what we do, if um, I think if you've done it enough times, you've, there's a comfort level that comes with it. And uh, I, I think it helps that if you've been around long enough, generally people kind of know who you are and where you're from. And they say, oh, okay, he's, he's been around a while. And and that that can help. But just to go back to one of my first, and this will really answer your question for you. One of my first assignments at the Westfield Evening News, Westfield is right near Holyoke. And back in those days, Holyoke Millers were a double A team. Uh, they played at McKenzie Field. They were the double A farm club of the Milwaukee Brewers. The general manager of the Brewers was Harry Dalton. Harry Dalton was from West Springfield, Mass, which is right next to Westfield and Holyoke. And he'd gone to Amherst College. Well, Harry Dalton is coming back to Holyoke for Harry Dalton night. I had just been hired at the Westfield Evening I'm 22 years old. I'm a month and a half, two months out of UMass. I have to go to McKenzie Field and interview Harry Dalton, who is a very well, he's passed away but at the time, very well-known baseball executive. He was the, the Theo Epstein of his time. He'd been with the Orioles, he'd been with the Mets, he, he was a very well-known guy. And I had to interview him and I was wetting my pants. I mean, he was like 45, 50 years old and I'm shaking and I'm asking him, what's it like to be back in the like and and Harry Dalton actually said to me, he said, "Hey, just just calm down. We're just two guys talking and I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know he was, was twenty two years old, and um i' I'll, I'll never forget that night on many levels. Number one, Max Patkin was there, uh the clown prince of baseball. if you've ever seen um bull durham he Max patkin he's the guy that's running around the field, he's a professional clown he Max Patkin was making an appearance that night the manager of the West Haven Yankees, Holyoke was playing uh, the West Haven Yankees, the manager was Stump Merrill, who I would later cover when he managed the Yankees, uh, 16 years, what, 17, whatever it was years later, when I was covering the Yankees and he was the manager. And in the third or fourth inning of that game, the West Haven pitcher was a guy named Gil Rondon, R-O-N-D-O-N, and he got lit up a little bit. Stump came out to take him out And as Gil Rondon's walking off the mound, this is at McKenzie Field in 1978, he stopped, he threw his glove up in the air, and he started screaming, why can't I get anybody out? And he (laughs) ran down the left field line, hopped over the fence, exited the ballpark and crossed the street. And There's a softball field across the street. And he sat out in the center field in full uniform like this, with his hands behind his neck, watching the softball game for the next hour. So we're like, here's the game going on in front of us, and you look across the street. The pitcher would just got out of the game. It's across the street, softball <laughs> game. And I'm like, and I'm like, this is the business I want to be in. Yeah, that's awesome. This is all that's in one night. Being Harry Dalton, I, I saw Max Patkin do his do his thing, squirting water out of his face. Uh, I saw Gil Rondon scream. And Gil Rondon made it to the big leagues. Uh, uh, I think with the Houston Astros. Good for him. Go run and made it to the big league, so good for him. But I mean, that was like the first thing I ever covered.
0: Yeah, and that's that's I great. I want to be in this business. So, yep. Yeah, we've we've had those moments. I think if you work in sports and you're trying to figure yourself out, you have those moments of okay, yeah. now I know I, I want to be in here. Um, going back to four. Just, just, oh, just
1: like like what am I most proud of? What I, you know, Malcolm yeah. Buck, Yes, I was there. Uh, 23. Yes. I was there. Bill Buckner game six. I was there. Um, the, the, the Celtics being the Lakers anyway, I was there, but the story, every
0: single important Boston moment,
1: (laughs) but the pieces, the stories I love to tell, but Gil Ronan and Harry Dalton and, uh, Donnie Beardsley. Those are the pieces. Those are the stories that I like to tell that are important to me.
0: Yeah. Um, going back to when I was talking about Fort Myers earlier, um, what you just said when you told that story, when you were kind of, I guess, starstruck in a way, like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm in this situation. Yeah. Uh, I always was like, like people are asking me, Oh, well you're going to see so-and-so there. Like you're going to see Mookie Betts. You're going to see all of these guys who you've been watching on TV. Maybe you'll see Pedro, David Ortiz. Maybe they'll stop by. Like I'm not going to be starstruck. I've like, I did some internships. I've seen some guys like Yarmar Yager looked me in the face one time. I'll be fine. Uh, so I, I get to, I get in the locker room for, for Fort Myers. First time I'm looking around like that's fucking Mookie bats. Like, holy! I was like, I didn't think it would hit me. So that's another thing you got to brace yourself for. Um, one more thing on that. And then we can get into actual, some, uh, baseball talk before we wrap things up. When you're, when you first talk to a player, like for example, one of my regrets from Fort Myers is I didn't kind of put myself out there and do any like one-on-ones. I was kind of more covering the day to day. Um and next time if I go, I'm, I, that's a goal of mine is to get some one-on-ones done. But how do you establish that relationship with the player or coach uh, if you're just getting in? How do you kind of get over that awkwardness of hey, hi, uh, this is who I am, this is who I work for? Um, are, are they for the most part like okay, what's up? Let's talk, or is it kind of like get out of here? I don't have time for this, or both? Well,
1: I'm not a beat writer anymore, so I don't do as right. much of that. Um, I, what I can tell you is that uh 1987 was like the first year i really covered a big league team on a daily basis i had gone down a fenway when i was up in maine and out in westfield i'd get a day pass once in a while but i'd be one of those people standing like five deep everyone's interviewing yastrzemski and the veteran boston baseball writers joe Giliotti and peter gamins and larry whiteside and uh, chas Coggins and those guys bob Finnegan, they're interviewing yaz and I didn't even ask a question. I was just standing back and I, I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel it was my place. I was just sort of a tourist. And at that point, then I covered the minor league team in Maine, but, but really when I got out to Seattle, um, one of the things I did was I, I made it a point in spring training, I was there for you know two months, whatever. Dick Williams was the manager. And I said every single day, one a day, I'm going to have a private interaction with every player in camp just so they know who I am, what my name is. And it won't necessarily be an interview, just like some, and, and I'm not going to go one, to or alphabetical order. It just depends on who's standing alone doing nothing or who I walk past. And I would try to find some little piece of commonality and, uh, you know, I'm walking by and Jim Presley, who's the third baseman, uh, walks by. And uh, actually, I'll I'll leave Jim Presley out of this, but like Mark Langston, who was the big lefty pitcher, and I went up to him and said, "Hey, I just noticed in the bio that you played in, you know, Modesto in the minor leagues, and I know a guy." And and you just shoot the shit for like like five seconds, ten seconds, thirty minutes, thirty seconds, a minute, two minutes, and then okay, thanks. And the reason I held up on Jim Presley because (laughs) they they had a guy named Brick Smith who played briefly in the big leagues, but I spent like five minutes talking to him one day. Because he was uh, he had played in Chattanooga the year before and hit like a bunch of home runs. Well, the old ballpark in Chattanooga was like four sixty to center field, and I saw him one day and I said, "Hey, what what's it like, you know, hitting in Chattanooga?" When his, and he's talking and stuff like that. Well, the very next day, now I have a you know an interaction with Brick Smith. The next day I'm walking out to the field and Brick Smith comes walking by me, and he says, "Hey Buck," and I go, "Hey Brick." And he just walks by me, the player directly behind him was Jim Presley, who was the third baseman. That's why I held up on this. Mm-hmm. And, and this stayed with me all these years. I had not really had an interaction with Jim Presley. Yet. I had talked to him in crowds of reporters and he was a pretty good player at that point. Well, Brick Smith walks by me and says, hi, Buck. And I go, hey, Brick, Presley's right behind him. And he goes, hi, Buck. And I go, oh, hey, Jim. And, and, and I, he didn't really know me at that point, but he had picked it up. Through the guy in front of him, right? And I said, "Oh, okay. So you develop relationships, um, and again, this is a lot more important uh, for beat writers. And mm-hmm. some put a lot more work into it, or have a lot more natural affinity to it. Um, I, I would say uh, Rob Bradford at W E I as a is uniquely talented with what we call working the clubhouse." Um, he, he does it as well as anybody. When I was in New York, Michael Kay, who's now the play-by-play voice of the Yankees for the Yes Network. But when I was covering the Yankees, he was with the New York Post and then the Daily News. And he worked the club. out better than anybody. Jeff Oregon, who used to be at the Herald was really good. Uh, I'm told Peter Gammons back in the day was, was uniquely talented. It's just, uh, um, it, it's something that some people want to do. They're, they're good at it um i i didn't i didn't put as much into that as other people i i i was more into managers and coaches and general managers and scouts and stuff like that and uh in, in as a columnist now in the future i i don't it's not really my it, it it's not really my purview to do that right but i did enough of it but some people are better at it than me
0: gotcha so let's get into some baseball talk because i know that's i mean that's how we first uh, kind of met in the newsroom as we started randomly talking about i i'm actually going to press you on this one i'm going to bust you a little grill, bit I think the first time i ever talked to you what's that you got into my grill the first time I ever yeah, talked yeah that's what i was just about to say i think I the said, first time i talked to think you know you like no so i think I our just- good friend evan Drellick was in the newsroom at the time and uh I, I remember this like it was yesterday he was in the newsroom at the time you guys were chatting i'm kind of typing away on the computer and i am like eavesdropping a little bit the topic at that time was a potential trade jackie bradley jr for jose abreu it was kind of a speculation thing at that point and i'm sitting there i'm listening to evan Drelic talk about oh maybe it's not a good idea to trade jbj for jose abreu and i'm getting increasingly mad at the computer just like yes it is it's like that's a no-brainer and i'm not 100 sure if you agreed with him or not but that's where the conversation started, where I kind of piped in. I'm like, "That's stupid! Like they they should pull that trade. They should have pulled that trade yesterday." And I, I remember that That was like three years ago. Today, obviously, that's a no-brainer because Jose Abreu just won the AL MVP. I, I'd like you to formally apologize on the show if you did say that uh, that was a bad trade, JBJ, for Jose Abreu.
1: I was a big JBJ guy, so I can. Uh,
0: I don't. I don't to- hate him. But Jose Bray is like a 900 OPS guy, and JBJ yeah, is so he is what he is. How
1: kid in the class? Congratulations. <laughs> uh, but I, I I don't remember. I, I remember I remember being a big JBJ guy because I often said every time I go to a game, he makes the greatest catch we have ever seen, and uh, which is he, very true. He was worth the money, and I, I just loved the way he played baseball. And yeah. uh, um, I I don't remember that specific thing I do remember talking to Evan and just shooting the breeze and all of a sudden this like high school kid on the side of the desk that's not
0: high school not high school I'm kidding
1: but uh
0: (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like who the hell are
1: you and uh, obviously it didn't offend me because we're we're, we have a good oh yeah
0: no it wasn't like a it wasn't like a blow up we were just we got a little bit of a debate there uh which if you're if you're talking baseball i'm gonna oh, and by the way just
1: to be clear i admire that i it, yeah. it, the same situation uh you would have been 23
0: back then or 24 or whatever About 20, i think i was 23 24 at the time yeah
1: okay so if you go back to when i was 23 24 if i was seated where you were seated right and on the other side it was uh joe Gilliatti from the herald and peter gammon from the glow who've been covering the red sox for 100 years if, if they were having that conversation, I would have been like, ah. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So, so kudos to you for like, I don't care who you are. I'm going to throw in my two right. Well, here.
0: Evan Drellick was kind of my guy at the time. Like I, I, me and him got along great. So I kind of, I was more so piping in to kind of be like, Evan, if you're going on TV with this take right now, like think about it a little bit. Cause this is a little stupid, but Wait, you were there get- and, I wasn't like afraid to talk to you either and you shouldn't be afraid. That's another lesson to people listening, like get involved, yeah. like get, build relationships. Yeah, Evan
1: and I are just two schmucks and we just happen to have
0: full-time baseball jobs. And
1: he's <laughs> part of it.
0: Hey, he's doing a great job by the way too. I just realized you guys work at the same uh, same company as well. So do you we, still we, do you still talk week, with we, them or?
1: Oh yeah, we, you know, not yeah. as much, but we we, um, we worked together at the Herald for a short time. I actually first right. met him, he was uh, at Mass Live uh, I think maybe even before that he was like an intern at MLB or something. Okay. So I've known Evan as he's evolved and, um, and then he, uh, I got hired at the athletic a little over two years ago and then like a year later they hired him and he's obviously he, he's more investigatory with the, the stuff he did in the cheating scandal with the Astros. Yeah. Uh, he's down in New York. Now I'm more of a new England based feature writer. So we, we sort of, We don't have a lot to do with each other. There's an exchange of texts once in a while and so forth.
0: Gotcha. Uh, One question I have for you. It's kind of a two part question is, how did you first fall in love with the sport of baseball? And today, be honest, are you in love with what baseball is right now? Okay, uh,
1: be honest, tricky. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay, so I fell in love with baseball because when I was a little kid, my older brothers and my older sister were huge Red Sox fans. So there was Red Sox talk going on in the house on a daily basis. And most importantly, my mother's brother, my uncle, uh, Fitzy, uh, Bill Fitzgerald, um, he was, he worked at a place in Sunnivu by day. And at night he was an usher at Fenway Park. And, So he was able to get us into the ballpark when we were kids So the Red Sox would get like six, seven thousand people a game. So throughout my childhood, I knew his buddy at gate, whatever, and he would let us in. And then he was the usher, my uncle, right behind the first base dugout. So those were all box seats, club season tickets. And we would wait until about the third inning. And by then my uncle knew which of the people weren't in attendance, which seats were empty. And I'd go see my uncle in the third row, in the third inning rather. And he'd say, hey, go, go take those two seats down there. And I'm sitting like in the second row behind the dugout. That's how I grew up watching the Red Sox. And obviously 67 was huge. I was 11 years old when they won the pennant. Um, but as early as I can remember, uh, 69 was a big year too, because that was the first year, I was 13. That was the first year that me and my buddies could go to Fenway without adult supervision. And we must have gone to forty games a year. No, I'm not exaggerating because we just went all the time, because my, we could get in for free, we could we could sit where we wanted because they didn't draw they, they they would draw much better by then, but there would still be empty seats. And then we'd see my uncle, and we'd get really good seats. And um, so so baseball became a part of me and has been throughout my life. Do I love the game as much as yeah I do? Um, really. Okay. Uh, I have the m l b package i i i, I like i love watching the mets they're my i fell in love with the Mets in sixty nine because they the amazing Mets reminded me of the impossible dream red sox so as much as I blather on about the sixty seven Red sox I can go on and on about the sixty nine Mets Clan Jones at left tommy e g center you know uh buddy Harrelson at shortstop Jerry Grody behind the plate uh siever Kuzman, you know, Gary Gentry, Nolan Ryan, Ed Cranepool, you know, I can just go Hodges, the manager, I can go on and on. Um, yeah, it, there's a lot of problems in baseball. They're really screwing it up. Uh, the hit a home run or strikeout thing, the the, the changing pitches every five minutes, the roster. The extra
0: innings rule. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's. Uh, oh, you agree it, now? What's that? <laughs> the extra innings rule, the man on second? I wrote about, I, I had an epiphany on that. Yeah, we, we talked about it. And I said, I hate the rule. And yeah, you said, like and yeah, I, I just had to bring that up really quick.
1: Okay. <laughs> I, I, here's, I, I'm i not sure about it moving forward when we get back to 160 game season. What I, what I will tell you is that I was dead set against it. Apparently, we had this discussion. <laughs> uh, I don't remember. I'm sorry. Um, Fair enough but I wrote a column on, you can look it up in the athletic. I wrote a column on it during the season and it was a Mets game. Uh, I was watching a Mets game. It was the first time that it looked like the game would go to the 10th inning. It was like the Mets had tied it in the ninth or whoever they were playing tied it. And the announcers were Gary Cohen, uh, Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling. And they immediately started talking, well, if we go to the 10th inning, they put a runner on set. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm, immediately leaning forward i'm watching a game on the mlb package on my ipad in the backyard and i'm leaning forward and i'm thinking do you bump the guy over do you what do you and i'm really thinking strategy now and i was pulled into it without even knowing i was and i called my editor the next day i said you know what i i found myself organically being wrapped up in do you bunt the runner over and uh do you put a pinch runner out there do you you know it's the guy who would have been you know and all that and uh uh do you have a pinch hitter up Do you change pitchers? what do you do then um when i didn't have any answers because it was all new and shiny to me and uh i remember um the the red sox um uh told me they one of one of the things they talked about was that coming into the season they reached out to mike gambino the baseball coach at boston college because they had been using the rule in college baseball and they just hey mike when you when you go to the 10th inning do you do this and what's your mindset they just want to know what mindset was and mike was saying i'll do this i do that so uh i found myself pulled into it and i wrote a column saying mea culpa um i'm i'm all for this
0: I actually, the way no. you put it there, it makes sense. But I, I still disagree. I don't like it. But I think the way you oh, put I it, didn't? Like I'm sorry. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, the way you put it does make sense, though, because it it makes you think a little bit. But at the same time, ta- at the same time, wouldn't it be more like, for example, are you in favor of the universal DH? I am
1: now because there's a, there's already enough. The, the, um, the, the, but that the,
0: goes against strategy in the national league. Yeah.
1: It does. And
0: yeah, but you know what?
1: For years and years I would say, oh, the double switch. And you know, and I'll give you I'll give you a historical example is that the final day of the nineteen sixty-seven season, it's the bottom of the sixth inning. Jim Lomborg is pitching his ass off for the Red Sox, but there were a couple of errors. They're down 2 nothing If they have to win this game, if they have any chance of winning the pennant, they have to win this game. It's the last day of the season against the Minnesota Twins. It's the bottom of the sixth inning. Who's leading off for the Red Sox? jim lomborg the pitcher do you send up a pinch hitter for him down by two runs in the sixth inning or do you let lomborg bat right that's tough jim lomborg used to be a poor hitting pitcher in spring training of that year bobby door was the first base coach hall of fame second baseman or later he would be yeah. you know, hall of fame. he got talking to lomborg and he said you need to improve on your bunting skills if you can bunt you can stay in the game longer and you can help affect the outcome of a game. He worked on on his bunting skills. Dick Williams decides to like Jim Longwood bat and he drops his bunt down in front of the plate, takes a high hop, Cesar our comes in, tries to, make no play. The Red Sox scored five runs that inning and they won the American League pennant. I have often said, and I'll say again here in this forum, that that is the most famous, most important bunt in Red Sox history and probably Major League Baseball, because I can't think of another one. This one helped win an American League pennant. Now, with it, so we're never gonna have that again, because that decision in the universal DH world will be taken away. But how often does that actually happen?
0: So I was gonna and say that is, that's an awesome moment. Don't get me wrong, but. The chances are so slim where the majority yeah. of the time there you're gonna get a guy like John Lester just either shanking the bunt or he's gonna be out on the bunt or something, yeah. or he's gonna just ground into a double play. Like something bad is you're you're probably not gonna have that kind of miraculous event happen. And by the way, there are good
1: hitting pitches. Baumgarten is a very good hitting pitcher. There's a handful. Uh the Mets got a bunt, Jake DeGrom, uh Syndergaard. Mats Matz is a good hitting pitcher um that's basically <laughs> well no those are just they're, they all have any good hitting pictures right uh, right um josh beckett hit a home run if you remember uh rick porcello with you know off of uh max scherzer True.
0: yep and, and i think uh, even and, david price didn't david price he had a hit against the nationals that series yeah, so It was like his it, first it,
1: hit it. And look up look up rick porcello's hit
0: oh it, i remember it was a double right
1: yeah it might have been bases loaded it wasn't i think double. you're right but if you listen to the announcers, I think the YouTube video is the Nationals' announcers. Or it might have been a national game. I forget. But, the, well, here's Rick Rousseau against Max Scherzer. Yeah. Well, this is going to be something. Ha, ha. <laughs> and they're just dismissing the whole event. And they're talking about their favorite movies and everything. And let's get this over with. And boom, he cracks, That's it, I think, awesome. left center field. And uh, so, yeah, those things. And when I was a kid, Sonny Siebert was a great hitting pitcher, Gary Peters. The Red Sox used to use Gary Peters as a pinch hitter um and uh this is just a stat i saw last week there was a pitcher and i forget who he is got three intentional walks one year he was a pitcher but because of the situation runner on second nobody out or whatever they actually walked a pitcher uh, yeah
0: there can be some exciting moments i just think i think these days especially uh, for better or worse i guess you want that JD Martinez kind of coming up yeah. rather than you know yeah. Madison Bu- Madison but, Bumgarner might be an exception but there you'd okay. rather that big Nelson Cruz or someone like that coming up in yeah. that situation All right. so let going. me
1: pose a question to you National Hockey League National Basketball Association National Football League Major League Baseball those are the four major league sports with them with apologies to MLS out of those four major sports Baseball is the only sport where, when the game goes to overtime, people start to leave. This is something I've noticed for years and years and years. I'm in the press box. Nobody's going to leave a NFL game. Games go overtime because it's you know. Can
0: I so. interrupt for one second?
1: You can interrupt. For oh, two seconds.
0: I think, <laughs> I think most people are leaving. And forgive me if I'm wrong. I think most people are leaving because they have like a train to catch. Like, oh shit, the game's going long. I got to go because the train's at whatever. Time, you know, like it. The trains in Boston only run till, say, uh, what? Like probably midnight. Mm -hmm. So, so the game's going. It's eleven thirty. Now you're going into extra innings. You got to get the hell out of there. That might be completely off base, but that's not.
1: It's part of the problem. Oh, I see. If it's eleven thirty, it's because the game has gone eight, nine, ten, four and a half hours. And baseball games lumber along as it is, and people in their minds they only can devote so much time. So there are two factors in play. Number one, it's a 162 game season. So any individual game isn't of like the NFL where every game is the end of the world. And number two, because baseball games tend to labor on and on because of various factors that we've discussed, uh, people say, okay, I, you know what? I, I got to get the kids to bed. I have a job in the morning, the trains, uh, mm-hmm. I take the I take the T to Fenway a lot, and uh, uh, yeah, that that can be an issue. So, but but be that as it may, because of these factors and other factors, people attach a time element to a Major League Baseball game, and you know, NFL, NBA, NHL, people aren't going to leave. They just don't, and I've right. I've seen it. I'm sitting in the press box. All right, we go to overtime. You look down. Everyone's just all right. Here we go, overtime. Bottom of the ninth, three three, Mookie flies to center, and we go to the tenth inning. I look down and there are people just are whoops and they're gathering all their stuff and it's almost like they don't even just they don't even discuss it. All right, let's go. Because those are
0: those are more so I think there's there's a lot more casual fans. I think that's you're kind up. of what you're getting at. You're there's up. just a lot more casual baseball fans. If you're a fan of the Patriots, chances are you're very invested. If you're a fan, I most of my friends are not heavily invested in the Red Sox. Um, nobody goes. Nobody goes. Huge baseball fans.
1: Nobody goes to a Patriots game because it's a day out. Correct. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's it's uh, even 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 the music. I wrote a big feature for the Athletic on on pro sports theme music. And if you listen to the CBS and the Fox, it's like <laughs> it's like they're launching off the spears and shields. They're going off to war, yeah. and and if you've been to a Patriots game, and you you're driving down Route One and it's bumping a bump of traffic, and you see the people walking toward the stadium, they've all got Gronk and Brady, and they it's like right. serious stuff. And I know they do the tailgating and they throw the Nerf football and all that but football is not, it, it's a very serious thing. with yes. baseball, you know, you get the whole George Carlin thing. Baseball is played in the park. And, uh, Sweet
0: Caroline, it's like, Sweet Caroline. Yeah.
1: And, uh, in the, I remember, uh, a couple of years ago when the, uh, last year when the Bruins played the St. Louis Blues and the Stanley Cup final, <clears throat> well, there was an off night, one night between games and the Cardinals were at home playing, I think the Giants and all the media, everybody went and they have that like platform out in right field way up, and the tickets are like, you know, $8 or something. Not on like the roof at Fenway, but it's a bigger stadium and it's a newer stadium. And we were all out there, beer and hot dogs and, and, and camaraderie and, and we were sort of watching the game, but we just wanted to see the ballpark. I mean, I had been there because I had covered the World Series there and some other stuff, but um, but we were all, these were a lot of hockey writers who had never been to the St. Louis ballpark, Bush stadium. And we were kind of watching the game, but it was a night out. There was lots of beer, lots of hot dogs, such like burgers and stuff. The food mm-hmm. was great, brats and stuff. And um, I think a lot of people go to baseball games because it's a night out. And then it's 20 after 10 we're going to the 10th inning total
0: so how do you get more hardcore fans of the sport is there we don't is need more hardcore
1: fans. Fans. if if i owned a major league baseball team i'd be thrilled if casual fans were coming every True. night because they're filming the ballpark they're they're enriching our coffers uh which we need money to pay players and improve the product um uh you know, I'd like to, you may not, you may be surprised. I actually would like to see a new Fenway Park. I think Fenway's antiquated, it's crowded. Um, it's
0: definitely not an ideal park. Like, I, I get what you're saying. It's actually the only park I've ever been to, right. fun, like, which is crazy, but I don't it get out cool. much. Yeah. yeah, I don't get out much. Um, but I, whenever I'm in there, I'm like, this place is not designed for what baseball, like what it is today. Like, it's no. it's it's a landmark, but it's it could use a big time remodeling at the least i agree yeah, that.
1: Base, baseball um <clears throat> uh bob ryan from the globe describes fenway as a uh uh 19th century ballpark uh no it's a 21st century ballpark because you know built for people who were born in the 19th century uh
0: yeah, kind of is
1: <laughs> we are physically bigger people than we were fenway opened in 1912 and yeah. uh it would just we we're, we're big protein bombs now we're, we're you know we, we eat more we we lift more mm-hmm. uh we are physically bigger people and and people in 1912 didn't go to Fenway because it was a day out it was like it was a lot more oh baseball you know the royal Rooters and all that and uh accoutrements and in sushi and and changing stations for babies none of that stuff was in evidence in 1912. people are a lot more into creature comforts now than they were and family doesn't offer that and um uh it, it's just just an entirely different experience
0: right um, but having, one thing having that but having said yeah, that
1: uh that's why that's why the red sox aren't in a real hurry to rebuild fenway because fenway is america's most beloved ballpark. yeah that's always
0: going to be the resistance to it and I, I i'm conflicted too because of that and so i can't imagine how Red Sox ownership, current Red Sox ownership, would ever want to change that. Um, if
1: you go to Fenway, in, in again, in a, in a pre and post-pandemic world, if you go to Fenway now any time of the year, there's, there's people lined up outside to pay good, hard-earned money to take a tour of right. Fenway Park. And, and I've often used this line or use it again. People pay more money now to take a tour of an empty Fenway Park than paid to buy a ticket to an actual game when I was in high school. And that's crazy. And um, and people come from all over the country, all over the world, just to go to Fenway Park. And you see it, like when I was a kid, you go to Fenway, you didn't see people in Philly shirts walking around. They don't there's something Glenn Ordway always point we used to do the EEI show out in Lansdowne Street. And whichever team was in town, fans would come up to the glass and they do the this With the shirt yeah yeah you know you know great good for you and go and um but when i was a kid you you didn't see like hundreds of fans wearing the apparel of the opposing team you went to socks game to be red sox you might see an odd guy here and there a family or something but the the notion of fans taking road trips to see opposing ballparks and to root for their team there are people who plan vacations to go to Fenway and they plan for the week that their team is in Boston and they buy tickets. A whole family of Royals fans with the shirts and the caps and everything. And obviously if you've ever traveled, you haven't, but if you, if you travel with the Red Sox, if you go to Tropicana field at Camden Yards, the place is filled with Red Sox fans.
0: Right. You you don't even need to travel to know that. I mean, you watch the broadcast and it's let's go Red Sox chance. So
1: yeah, and it's, it's uh, it, it, people, because it's a night out, it's entertaining, and people love seeing um, the new ballparks. And I, yeah. I am extremely lucky that I covered baseball as a beat writer when I did, because I got to see all of the old ballparks and all of the new ones. Yeah. So you go to Milwaukee, Milwaukee County Stadium, I covered games there. Now you got Miller Field, Miller Park, I've covered yeah. games there old bush stadium new bush stadium uh three river stadium in pittsburgh pnc park and it was a good era for me and, and uh because i love seeing ballparks the only of all the new ballparks the only ones i haven't seen and it's only because they've only opened in the last couple of years is the new one in texas and the new one in atlanta i saw that and oddly enough both those cities are in their third new ballpark i was at atlanta fulton stadium i was at turner field i haven't been to the new ballpark in atlanta I was at, um, the old Arlington stadium, which was a real dump. And and then the new ballpark, which has now been replaced by the new, new ballpark. So those are the only two I haven't been to.
0: There's probably only a handful. And if I wasn't from Boston, Fenway would be one of them, but there's probably only a handful of parks. I truly like our bucket list parks. Like I need to go see PNC park. I need to go see, uh, it's now Oracle. Um, but San Francisco? I, not or yeah, San Francisco, whatever the hell it's named now. No, it's um,
1: names,
0: yeah. yeah. I don't even know, but San Francisco, I actually did a tour of Petco, but I want to go back because, uh, it was like, uh, they, they were setting up for some monster truck thing. So the whole field was dirt. Like it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't the beautiful stadium that it should have been. So there, the, Wrigley is another one just because of the history. Um, so there's probably only a handful that I would personally want to go Camden. Um, so
1: I would put not that you asked. I would put Camden number one. Yeah, uh, I, I love the it because it, it's set. It was the template from which all the other ballparks came, and the way they wedged it into the urban scape by keeping the B and O warehouse in right field. Uh, I would put Camden number one. Oracle number two. PNC is beautiful. God, I could just.
0: That's the I, one like, I think that tops my list because I've is, just seen that, the. Yeah. I just seen kind of the, the, almost like, like, you know, the aerial view of it, you just see yeah. like how beautiful it is. And that's the one that tops my list. I'm um, yeah. kind of switching gears here. I, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, I don't know how, like, you know, kind of sensitive of a topic it is. David Price, a few years ago uh, you obviously, I think you and Evan actually kind of had a dust up with him uh, after like, I don't know if you know what I remember, remember what I'm talking about. Maybe there was multiple yeah. instances. Um but take me through that whole ordeal because I I don't think I've read any further on the situation. I don't know if you, maybe you wrote a co- some sort of column around it, but I yeah, don't well, remember. Like, just take mind. me through I, that, that we, situation.
1: Dust-up was not with me. I mean, I had dust-ups with David later on. Yeah. Um, the dust-up was between David Price and uh, and Evan. Um, yeah. the, how I get involved in it is I wrote about it.
0: And oh, Christ I see. Okay.
1: What and, and what happened was, um, Price had said, okay, so it, it's it's a weird domino thing. Um, Dan Shaughnessy had talked with David Price before the game and Price said, I'm not gonna talk with the media anymore. And Dan wrote a column about it. And the column was posted during the game. And this was at New York at Yankee Stadium. -hmm. So it pops up about the fourth inning of the game. It was what we call an early column that Dan had written. And uh, I I was still at the Herald. And so uh, we're all aware of that column. Evan tweeted out that a reference to the column and said, according to Major League Baseball rules, players don't have to talk with the media. Right. And that's, it was fairly simple. The game ends and we're walking down that long hallway in the clubhouse to get to John Farrell's office. And I remember it like it was yesterday. David Price was standing next to a a hamper or something in the hallway. And as I walked by him, I could hear him in a very friendly voice say, hey, Evan, you got a second. And I could hear Evan say, yeah. And I didn't think much of it. And I went into John Farrell's office and within two minutes through the cinder block wall, you could hear Evan and, and David Price yelling at each other um somehow david price took it uh in a different way than what evan intended everyone was just pointing out hey they don't have to talk but i think there there were other factors uh between those two and it got very loud and very animated and and i w- and then later on everyone's down the other end of the club I was talking to whoever the star of the game was and price was talking to Porcello.
0: that's Hello. the part that i i remember yeah
1: and um and I wanted to do a column on Price saying, hey, is it true you don't want to talk with the media? Because I can't just assume that Dan had written it, but I wanted to hear what David Price had to say. And there's kind of an unwritten rule on the media is that there's certain times you do not talk to a player. If the you do not ever talk to that night's starting pitcher, you can yeah. Before the game and the starting pitcher is sitting there, he's pitching that night routine protocol
0: decorum dictates you don't talk to him. First thing I learned going to Fort Myers was that. That was the first thing I, I was taught. Uh, number two, if a player is eating, if he's on the phone or if he's talking to
1: another player. You don't want to walk up, he's talking to him, hey, excuse me. Like that. Right, right. So he was talking to Porcello and I stood 15, 20 feet away waiting for him to finish talking with Rick Porcello so I could go up. And and he looks up at me and he goes, what are you like that? <laughs> like they kind of turned into something. So um, I, said, I get nothing against David Price. I mean, I, he, he was a difficult guy uh, to, to work with from our perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he was ever a comfortable fit in Boston. He's all, it seems to be what well, he will be assuming he pitches with the Dodgers at some point. Yeah. Um, he, he, he could be a jerk in Boston. And I think it wasn't a, wasn't a good fit for him. Um he signed here because they offered him a boatload of money, um, which he might not have gotten someplace else. And uh, and by the way, I have no issue with him. I, I've been crystal clear on this. I made it, I said from the very beginning of the pandemic that I wasn't gonna criticize any player for opting out for any reason. And I've been consistent along. I, I championed his cause when David Price opted out. Uh, he didn't wanna be part of it this season. I don't know if he regrets it now that they won the World Series, but that's for him to decide. And when Tuka Rask opted out, I defended him, and the Bruins fans came down on me for that.
0: That, I, that part, we don't even have to get in depth on that. I don't know how you could be against Rask given every, given the circumstances there. And with Price, I mean, at the time, there were a lot of players, NFL, MLB, like a lot of people were opting out, so you can't really blame him. I know his team's great, but they're going to be great for the next five years. Yeah. You know. Um, last thing, and I'll let you go. The Hall of Fame ballot for 2021 was uh, released. I think I want to say last week. Do you, you get a vote in that? Yeah, right. Gotta get yeah. a vote. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm yeah. making sure. I'm just making sure. I didn't want to jump to conclusions. Uh, so I'm not going to list off every single guy. Do you have an idea of who deserves it? Yeah, I'm going to pass on that
1: because I really haven't done a deep dive into. Yeah, it. Um, that's fair. I'll, I'll just give you the the, the, the two hit points. Yeah. I, I do vote for Clemens. Okay. I do vote for Barry
0: Bonds. That was going to be the next but, question. So. There
1: were already steroid guys in the Hall of Fame. There were no distinct yeah. rules governing ho- uh, steroid use back then. Major League Baseball did nothing to thwart the use of steroids. And now they expect the writers to clean up the game. Right. So, uh, and the other reason, that, and I didn't vote for them for several years, but when Seelig was Major League Baseball commissioner at the time, he retires, boom, he gets whisked right off to the Hall of Fame. Joe Torre is in the Hall of Fame, Tony La Russa is in the Hall of Fame, they won World Series because they have players using steroids. And so, the way I look at it is, if, if Bud Selig is in the Hall of Fame, Tony La Russa is in the Hall of Fame, if Joe Torre is in the Hall of Fame, and I don't begrudge them for being there, they should be, uh, then it's hypocritical not to vote for some of the players who helped get them there. And Agreed. the game had unprecedented growth during Bud's tenure. That's because chicks dug the wrong long ball. Remember that big ad campaign yep. back in the late 80s?
0: But they just had a documentary of Sammy Sosa versus um, Mark McGuire, the home run race. It was the most exciting thing that yeah, season I or covered, that decade, I should say. I
1: covered McGuire um, breaking the record in St. Louis against Chicago Cubs. And uh, it was Mike Morgan gave up the 60th or 61st. I forget which one. But, um, uh, but yeah, I do vote for them. And uh, I, I, I vote for... Clemens, I have for Bonds. And in case this was in the back of your head, I am voting for Kurt Schilling. I voted for him all the way along. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt to me, given his 3,000 strikeouts and his like, otherworldly postseason record, I think Kurt Schilling belongs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I think he's a jerk. Um, I, I think some of the stuff that he's put out in social media is extremely insensitive um i don't agree with his politics but i'm okay with that it's it's the way his politics manifest themselves on social media that bothers me but doesn't keep me from voting for him he belongs you got to be
0: able to separate the two and unfortunately i think a lot of people aren't able to do that i didn't for whatever reason um it's like a grudge almost uh last thing david ortiz and a-rod are going to be on the ballot next year i believe are do you see them getting in what are you do you think you will vote for them
1: uh, okay, so I have a policy of never discussing call of fame readiness or worthiness exactly. for someone who's not on the ballot. So I recuse myself from that part of the <laughs> until they're on the ballot. Okay. Uh, if I think if you're asking if I think they'll get in, uh, I think that David Ortiz will get in, uh, I think it'll be a tougher road to ho- road to hoe. Um, people always get that wrong. They call it road to toe. it's row. <laughs> it's like a row of vegetables and a hoe. so it's row to hoe. It'll be, did you know that by the way people i've never scrolled.
0: heard that actually i've never heard that saying in my life so i i don't know if there's if you're even right or if the other way is right
1: there, there's certain little things that people up. one of them is wrote and the other one is the use of the word penultimate people always use it oh, yeah. as meaning it's the the great
0: the biggest hole. thing
1: yeah the biggest penultimate the biggest thing there's the no. ultimate and then there's what before that the penultimate
0: yeah, yeah. And,
1: um, and the other one is uh erstwhile so, uh, Joe Morgan of the Red Sox once called me there he is Steve Buckley the erstwhile Canterbridgeian <laughs> and I said well no actually I still live in Cambridge and he's, and, and and I think people think erstwhile means kind of like you know happy and whatever <laughs> erstwhile sounds casual and fun right erstwhile means former and um, oh, okay and I they call me the erstwhile Canterbridgeian which means which would mean that that I you used to live not there. there. But talk about going off
0: on a tangent. What was the question? Um, David Ortiz, A. Rod. Well, I guess because yeah, I, I know he, you don't want to touch he, on that, but do no, you see
1: I, him I, I'm it? not going to vote for it because they're not in the ballot yet. But right. um, it's tough enough to talk about the guys I do vote for um, because, like the way it is now, it used to be a fun thing to vote for the Hall of Fame. Ooh, it's a big controversial and, and thing now
0: because your ballots, your argument, there, are criticized. and I remember.
1: Years ago, this is a true story. Bob Ryan and I were in the press box at uh, the old stadium at Foxboro, And we were talking about, I wanna say Dave Concepcion, whether he should be in the Hall of Fame. And we're going back and forth. And all of a sudden there was an announcement on the in-game PA at the old stadium. Uh, uh, attention, well, the two gentlemen who were talking about the Baseball Hall of Fame, please either keep it down or bring the conversation to the back room. And because we were just, no, oh, how can you vote for Dave, because like that. And yeah. and that's when the whole voting for the hall of fame was fun. Now, because of steroids and and character clauses and, and social media, and, and I I will vote for Curt Schilling and I will post my results on Twitter when I submit right. my ballot. And I will be viewed as a hero to some people and a scallywag by others. Uh, and And you get some nasty commentary from people solely because of how you voted and of course the way the national process is going now in the president race but um it's gone are the days when you can have a lighthearted discussion about the hall of fame it's a lot more serious Serious. now
0: gone are the days you can really have a lighthearted discussion about anything because everything's on social media everyone's behind a a, you know a screen and typing whatever they want so that's the way it is now yeah Look, this was a great conversation. I'm glad we had it. It's been a long time coming to actually Will we just sit post down it, and all that fun stuff. We're gonna we're, we'll post it. I, I'm thinking early next week. I'm not 100 percent sure. I got a couple other people uh, to do this week, so I'm thinking about just throwing them all out there at once. Yeah. Uh, but uh, because we're just getting started. Congratulations! You're the first person I've interviewed for this podcast so far. <laughs> We've got a couple lined up, but you you are number one. So who's lined up uh, besides me? I don't know if I want to spoil it.
1: Oh, yeah, okay. you'll, you'll,
0: you'll just have to come back and check it out. That's that's. I played the subscribe with button with me. Yeah, there you go. Um, but again, thank you very much for coming on. I will say there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people in this industry who I think kind of have their nose up in the air. Uh, I've kind of learned that. There's a few that are, are are nice people, but you have always been good to me. You've always been uh, willing to have a discussion, so I do appreciate that. And again, that's thank all
1: on you, for- you because you stuck your nose into our discussion. So hey, so you
0: gotta do. What you gotta do sometimes. Because I don't know.
1: We might we might never have known each other if you didn't like. Hey, like, hey, I got something to say here. So well, <laughs> yeah.
0: If you didn't say don't trade Jackie Bradley Jr. for Jose Abreu, we wouldn't have. We maybe we wouldn't be I here. Right I,
1: okay, I, I must say. I, I might have made that trade. Maybe, maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't see a his future as you did. Um, but, uh, but I will tell you, I really just love watching him play. So, yeah. um, and, and I'm, I will mourn the passing not the passing, but the trade of Mookie Betts. I wanted Mookie Betts to play 20 years for the Red Sox.
0: Yeah. That's a whole other discussion. I don't want to get into cause I, I'm going to get yelled at for this, but I wasn't, I didn't hate the trade. I don't want to get into it, but I didn't right. hate it. Say <laughs> that for me. Nice. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a teaser for the next time you're on here. Right. Thanks again, Buck. I appreciate it and have a great rest of your day. Hopefully this pandemic ends soon so we can actually do this in person. All right. All right. Take care.